0: Let's start in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verses 1 through 4. And Paul's main theme is Christ-like humility. So chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Okay, in verse 1, Paul gives four truths about what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Okay, so before he tells us how to act, how to behave, how to treat each other, um, he tells us what God has done. Now, a lot of translations start out there, do most of your translations, so, so if there's any encouragement, if, okay. Yeah, I don't know why the English translations do that, but in the original language, it really should be since. So like these things are true. Since these things are true, act like a Christian with humility. And so, Paul lists four things that God has done for us. Okay, so first of all, he says there, since there is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement means that we're secure in Christ. We have union with Christ. We are Confident in our relationship with Christ. It really goes back to chapter 1, verse 6. What does chapter 1, verse 6 say? Just go back there real quick and look. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, listen, you have this confidence, you have this encouragement, God started this work. Basically, God's gonna keep you saved to the very end. You are secure in your salvation. Romans 8, 1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're not guilty, we have union with Christ, we have encouragement, we're secure. So the first thing Paul tells us is, listen, Being secure in Christ is the motivation for you to be humble towards others. If you're not secure in your relationship with Christ, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, if you struggle with your identity in Christ, it's going to be very difficult for you to show this type of humility and love towards others. And so first of all, we understand that we have this encouragement in Christ. And not only that, secondly, he says, any comfort from love, from love. We are loved by Christ. Christ loves us. Now, I'm going to give you a very, very profound theological statement that you're just, you probably waited years to hear how deep this is, okay? You know we can get pretty deep here on Wednesday nights, but here's, here's probably the deepest theological thought you're going to hear tonight, okay? You ready? You ready for it? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. We are weak when he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves. Okay, that's the, that's the theological truth that you're going to hear tonight, okay? The song you learned as a little child. Really, there's nothing more profound than being loved by Jesus. You're secure in Jesus, you have encouragement in Jesus. You've been comforted by the love of Jesus. And not just Jesus, but let's talk about another, the third person of the Trinity. Any participation, this is a third thing. Any participation or fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We have a participation, we have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 13 says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So in the gospel, God has poured out his spirit to us so that we can experience the love of Christ. So let me say it this way. We oftentimes don't talk about the Holy Spirit in Baptist churches because we're afraid of all the things the Holy Spirit it you know do, does do or doesn't do that we don't talk about what he does. Um, you and I would not be Christians if we did not have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that comes and lives in us. He's the one that unites us to Christ. He's the one that helps us experience the love of Christ. And so this fellowship, this participation we have with the Holy Spirit, is what gets us that close relationship with Christ. Because let, let's talk about this. Where is Jesus right now? When little kids, quote-unquote, ask Jesus into their hearts, is that really a true statement? I know what they mean by that, but where is Jesus? He's physically in a body at the right hand of the Father. Who's, who's in our hearts, really? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit lives in us. He connects us to Jesus so that we can experience that love. And so we, we have this relationship with Jesus. We have the love of Jesus. We have the encouragement from Jesus. And it's given to us through the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing that Paul says there in verse 1 is that we have affection and sympathy that comes from Jesus. We've experienced this gut-wrenching compassion. Now, it's kind of interesting. Didn't Paul just tell us we were loved by Jesus? Why would he repeat it? Why would would Paul say it again? Because he doesn't want us to get over the fact that Jesus loves us. That word affection there, it's a strong word. It really means that Jesus' guts spilled out in compassion for us. It's the same word used when Jesus saw the crowds. In Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. Same word there. His, his a gut-wrenching emotional compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. So in verse 1, just before we go any further, Paul lists out four blessings that we have in our relationship with Jesus. We have the security, the encouragement of Jesus, we have the love of Jesus, we have the the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we have the compassion of Jesus. All these things are given to us from Jesus. Now, that should make a difference in what Paul's going to say next. Since or if these things are true, and they're true for you if you're a Christian, then these things that Jesus and the Holy Spirit does for you should motivate you to do what Paul says next. And so in verse 2, we really see the main verb or the main thing in this entire section, and it is complete my joy. Make my joy complete. So it all comes back to joy. Now, let's just talk about where's Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's the founding pastor, the church planning pastor of the church in Philippi. And as a pastor, he's like saying, listen, I'm in prison. I can't be with you. But what would really make me joyful, what would really warm my heart with the joy of Christ is if you would practice these things he's about to say. So, really, one of the things that Paul is saying is, basically what Paul's saying is, make your pastor happy. That's <laughs> basically what he's saying. Joyful. Complete my joy. Okay? Now, what does Paul want them to do to, make him, to, to complete his joy, to make, it, to make him joyful? What would make Paul joyful in these Philippians? Well, he, he doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us. He really wants us to have A Christ-like humility. If we don't get anything else from this passage of Scripture, the key word is Christ-like humility. Not just humility, but a Christ-like humility. Okay, so how do we make Paul's joy complete? In verse 1, he's already given us the power, the motivation, the identity These are all the things that we are in Christ. Make my joy complete. Okay, what Paul does here is he gives us four exhortations, four encouragements for us to adopt this Christ-like humility. So let's look at these tonight. So first of all, in verse 2, he tells us to have the same mind. Some translations use the word attitude. Now, I told you, what were the two top, the top words we said that were in the book of Philippians? One was joy, one was gospel, the other one's attitude. This word attitude or mind, the same attitude, it shows up around ten times in the book of Philippians. So what Paul wants us is to be unified in our thinking, unified in our attitude, going the same direction. So have the same mind, have the same attitude. So that's big ticket item, okay? Have the same mind. Now underneath that, and the reason I'm I'm trying to say underneath that is I'm trying to teach you how it is constructed in the original language with the way that these verbs all link together. The main verb there is have the same attitude, have the same mind. Underneath that, there are three subheadings. Okay? Remember I said there's four big ticket items? So this is the first with three subheadings. So think of an outline. Roman numeral one and then three subheadings. Okay? So Roman numeral one is have the same attitude. Okay, three subheadings. Okay. Subheading one. Having the same love. Or literally, in the present tense, keep on continually loving one another. Now, these are all in the present tense, which means that these are things we are to be continually doing as a lifestyle. We're to keep on loving one another. 1 John 3, 16-18. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So remember, big ticket item is have the same attitude. How do you have that same attitude? Subheading number one, love. It all comes back to loving one another, pouring out our hearts in love, and not just saying we love each other, but showing it with action. Okay. Subheading number two, being in full accord, or literally being united in spirit. one sold is really what the text says being connected together, walking in unison, being united. It's all really saying the same thing here. Paul, Paul is just kind of piling all these things on together. but He's basically saying, have the same attitude. Think the same way. Love each other. Be, have your souls knitted together. Be one soul. Be united. And then subheading number three, Keep on being intent on one purpose. Have one mind. Now, let's ask the question. What's the purpose? What's the unity? What what's what are they to be together in? Is it just, hey, we're going to be together for being together? No, what is the purpose for them to be united? Go back to chapter 1, and let's read verses 12 through 14. What was their purpose? What was their goal, or what was Paul's ambition? He's in prison, remember? So verse 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, that most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear." The the whole reason that we're together as a church family is not just so we're together as a church family. That's important. The reason is to advance the gospel, to share the gospel, (coughs) to preach the gospel so that people know the gospel of salvation. So the first way Paul says, hey, make my joy complete, you'd really make me a joyful pastor back here in prison if you all had the same attitude if you were loving one another if you were united if you had the same purpose if you're all going in the same direction if you're all going to, if you're advancing the gospel together as a unit loving one another that would make me joyful paul says so that's a positive thing so so verse Two, complete my joy, have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord, be of one mind. Those are all positives. Okay, the second big thing that Paul addresses, he starts to go into a negative, do not do something. Okay, before it was do something, now it's do not do something. So in verse three, the second big ticket item that we see here that Paul wants us to do in order to make his joy complete is he addresses our ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. When Paul there says do nothing, it's kind of a double negative. You're not really supposed to use a double negative in English. A double negative means you put two, 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 two no's together. So really what he would say is don't do anything, no, not anything. Really it would be don't do nothing, no, not at all, nothing. Don't do anything, not anything, out of selfish ambition. Does anybody else have a different word there besides selfish ambition? Does somebody have the word like rivalry? Or does everybody have selfish ambition? Greedy. A greedy heart. A selfish heart. A self-seeking, self-centered heart. You guys remember that dark comedy from the 1980s called Wall Street with Michael Douglas? It was a movie in the 80s. Um, he was a, his character's name was Gordon Gekko. Um, and he had, that, he had a speech about greed. It's kind of a famous speech from that movie. Um, and this is what he says in the movie. He says, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Sounds like what our culture lives off of today, doesn't it? Greed is good. But somehow, that attitude can become very prevalent among Christians if we're not careful. Selfish ambition. Greedy selfishness. Galatians 5.26 says this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Envying one another. So that word selfish ambition means to be um, seeking yourself, greedy, conceited, elevating yourself. And then the other word he uses there is conceit. The King James calls it vainglory. We don't use that term much anymore. It means empty glory. Empty glory. Now, let's just ask the question, who's supposed to get all the glory? God. What happens when you try to get all the glory and take it? It's empty. It means nothing. You're basically trying to take the place of God and exalt yourself. Okay. So, let's just backtrack. Paul says, make my joy complete. Okay, Paul, how do, you, how do we do that? Number one, have the same loving, caring, united attitude. Number two, negatively, don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Don't be greedy. Don't be puffed up. Okay, what's the third thing he does? Well, it's the second half of verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant. When Paul uses that term, count others more significant, that, that word really means give attention to. Concentrate on others. Being others focused look at other people as more significant than yourselves what do we tend to do we tend to think we're the most significant ones right that we're the ones that should get all the attention we're the ones that are the center of the of the universe everybody should bow to our wishes and our needs and paul say no listen humility means that you are really others focused you're thinking about others you're focusing on others you're trying to elevate others you're not trying to draw the glory to yourself you're you're being humble and then the last thing he does here or the fourth thing is in our focus he wants our joy to be complete Verse 4 Let us each look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Almost the same thing. It's like Paul's kind of saying the same thing over and over again with just little different shades of nuance. Look out for the interest of others, to be others focused. That word means to keep a sharp eye on others. Look at out for the needs of others. So let's just do a little bit of review. In verse 1, Paul says, listen, this is your identity in Christ. You're loved by Christ. You're held by Christ. You're in the grip of Christ. Christ has compassion on you. You have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Because of those things, those things... Who Christ is in you, who the Holy Spirit is in you, gives you the power to do the things that Paul's asking us to do. So Paul says, make my joy complete by, number one, having the same attitude. Number two, don't be selfish or conceited. Number three, be humble. And number four, look out for others. Now let me just ask you a question before we go any further. Easier said than done, right? What's our natural tendency? Is our natural tendency to be Humble? To look out for the needs of others? To be selfless? To be self-sacrificial? I don't, you don't need to answer this out loud, but, w- but which of these four do you struggle with the most? <laughs> I'll tell you something. Um, I did a word study about seven years ago on that word selfish ambition. Because I wanted to pinpoint what my, like I think each of us have like a main sin. Like if, we, if you were to strip everything away, I think all of us struggle with like one or two main root sins that we kind of struggle with over and over again. And, and, and God just kind of hit me with a two by four and it was selfish ambition. Let me describe to you what a person like myself, <laughs> what selfish ambition means. You're highly competitive. You're kind of a type A personality. You like things to be done your way. You get impatient with others. You tend to think other people are not as competent as you. And you have a very low tolerance for any type of failure in others. And you think that you are a know-it-all. Anybody here want to raise their hand to that? That, that describes, I, mean, I, I mean, you guys don't know me the way my wife does, but my wife's like, yeah, that's Sean Cole right there. So that's what selfish ambition means. And I think... I struggle with that, I think all of us struggle with humility and being humble. Remember that old song, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. You know? My parents gave me that t-shirt when I was a kid, it was funny. I had two t-shirts growing up that my parents gave me, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, and the other one says, he's a legend in his own mind, okay. <laughs> so, I'll tell you how, how bad it was, I think I've told you the story before. Okay, I was five years old, and you guys know that Eagle song, Take It to the Limit? Take it to the limit, one more time. I got in a knockdown, drag-out argument with my parents as a five-year-old, arguing with them that it was not Take It to the Limit, it was Take It to the Wigget. Now somehow I heard, "I'm like, no, it's Take It to the Wigget. They're like, no, Sean. We know this songs by the Eagles. is Take It to the Limit. So to this day, in our family, my parents remind me of how stubborn I was and selfish ambition, thinking that I was going to argue with them as a five-year-old and debate that it was Take It to the Wigget, not Take It to the Limit. So every time that song comes on, my parents look at me and like Take it to the Wigget. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So anyway, it happened when I was a very young kid. Now, we get to... Verse 5, which is probably the most, if we haven't been beaten up yet, (laughs) and I don't want us to be beaten up because grace. Think about all those things that verse 1 tells us. We're loved by Christ. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have grace. We can can be humble because God works in us. But verse 5 is kind of staggering and mind-blowing when you think about it. What does verse 5 say? Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. I think the NIV and other translations say, have the same attitude as Jesus. Think like Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Now let's just stop and think about that. Have the mind of Christ? Have the same attitude as Jesus? Think like Jesus? Be like Jesus? Wasn't Jesus perfect? Didn't Jesus ever sin? How in the world can we have the same attitude or mind as Jesus? Well, God promises to do that. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we find out something very, very important. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. Okay, let me explain this passage of Scripture. When you behold, what does behold mean? When you look at, when you study Jesus, when you spend time with Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms you to look more like Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is what we've been predestined to. Now, ultimately, one day when we're in heaven, we will be like Jesus because we'll have our glorified bodies. But Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here's something I've said over and over again, and I'll say it, and I'll keep saying it. It's this. The more we look at Jesus, the more we will begin to look like Jesus. Now let me unpack that for you. The more you look at Jesus. Now, question, where do you look at Jesus? Do you like to stare up into heaven and see where he's at? The more you look at Jesus, what I mean that is the more you study your Bible, the more you spend time in prayer, the more that you pour your heart out to Jesus, the more that you soak up who Jesus is, the more you're going to begin to look like Jesus. You're going to begin to think like Jesus. You're going to begin to act like Jesus because the Holy Spirit's doing this work in you to bring you to that point. Now let's just ask the question will you look as much like Jesus if you don't spend time looking at Jesus? There's a direct corollary there. If you don't spend any time in your Bible reading, praying, uh, taking advantage of all the things God has given you to grow, will you look as much like Jesus as you could? No. You need to spend time growing because God has created us to do that. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the question, and it's a very hard question. It's a very convicting question. Am I acting, thinking, speaking, relating, and responding like Jesus? Or as Paul would say in chapter one, verse 27, am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? Worthy of the gospel? Or let me ask it a different way. When people look at your life, do they see a glimpse of Jesus? So we cannot produce this attitude, we cannot produce this humility, we cannot do this in our own power it has to come through the Holy Spirit, it has to come through grace, it has to come through His power. I don't want you to ever think that you can do this in your own strength, or that you can walk out of here thinking, "I can do this. you can't. I can't. It only comes through the Holy Spirit working in us to become more like Jesus. So in light of verse five, Paul switches gears and says, okay, I've told you how you're supposed to act. Now I'm going to give you an object lesson. In verses 6-11, to I'm going to tell you what Jesus did. Okay? So verses 6-11 to is actually, I don't know if you knew this, it's an ancient hymn. It was sung. It's called the Carmen Christi, which means to the body or the work of Christ as God. Many scholars believe was sung by the early church to remind them of the glory of Christ. So this is, so verses 6 through 11 was like a praise song or a hymn that they would sing. And sometimes the early church would sing hymns or they would recite creeds that would remind them of who Jesus was and what he did. Now, this hymn has two purposes. And it has a twofold purpose. Very intricate, complex hymn here. Number one is to instruct us. There's some deep theology in this hymn as to who Jesus is. So, number one is to instruct us, but number two, it's to inspire us to not only worship Jesus, but imitate him. Here's what Paul's point is. Paul's basically saying, okay, I'm calling you to be humble. I've just told you to be humble. I've I've said you you need to be humble. Now I'm going to illustrate it by giving you the ultimate example of humility in what Jesus did. And by the way, you need to have the same attitude that Jesus did. So it brings up the question, what attitude or what did Jesus do that showed ultimate humility? So in this hymn, Paul gives three overarching ways that Jesus voluntarily humbled himself that are used to both instruct and inspire us. So three big things. Again, this hymn is to instruct us. We're going to get some deep theology, but it's also to inspire us to be like, wow, if, G- if this was the attitude of Jesus, Paul's saying, if this is the attitude Jesus has, you need to have that same attitude. Let's find out what it was. Okay? So, let's read verses 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I want you to see, I wish I had a whiteboard behind me, but I'm going to use my hands here. This hymn has a progression. It starts with Jesus in heaven. He leaves heaven to become a man. Not just any man, but a servant. And not just any servant, but the lowest point is to die on the cross. So it starts from Jesus Being in heaven, having all the full rights of God, being the perfect son of God, being the eternal son of God, but voluntarily choosing to leave all of that to ultimately come to die on the cross. That's humility. That's lowering himself. That's choosing, voluntarily saying, I'm not going to stay up here in heaven with all the things that I have. I'm going to voluntarily leave all of that to come die on the cross. So the first thing here we see is that. Jesus, or Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now let's think about this. This can be a little bit confusing. Theologically, is Jesus equal with the Father? Yes. Does Jesus share all the full attributes of God as God the Father? Yes, Jesus is fully God. He's not subordinate to God. He's not lower than God. He's not created by God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is fully God. Not the same person as the Father, but fully God. Shares the same essence of Godhood as the Father, though distinct in person. And so the amazing truth here that Paul just wants to start with is that Jesus has always been Fully God. Though he was, he was in the form of God. That word was means that he, is, he has always existed as God. There never was a point in time where Jesus came into existence. He's always existed forever and ever in eternity past and forever and ever in eternity future, if there's such a thing as time in eternity, as fully God. He's existed as the form of God. He has always been God. That, that, I didn't put a lot of this in your notes because I didn't want to bog you down with a lot of the Greek because the Greek is very, very helpful here in helping us to understand that. Though he was, that word was literally translated, he really has always been. He really has existed in the form of God. That's the word morph or morphe. It means the essential nature, that which is unchanging. In other words, what Paul is saying here theologically is that Jesus has always and really and truly and fully existed as God, fully divine. Jesus has always been fully divine. John 17, 5 tells us that. Jesus is praying in the garden. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus shared the same glory with the Father even before the world existed. Now, maybe I should talk a little bit about the Trinity here. Um, So let's just talk about the Trinity, because sometimes it gets confusing. There's one God, correct? Within that one God, there are three distinct persons. Who are the three persons? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Is the Father fully God? Yes. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit fully God? Yes. All three persons are fully, totally, eternally. They share the same essence as God. But they're three distinct persons. So let's ask it a different way. Is the Father the same person as Jesus? No. Is Jesus the same person as the Holy Spirit? No. No. Is the Holy Spirit the same person as the Father? No. There are three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet these three persons share the full essence, substance, being, whatever word you want to use, as fully God. And they are co-equal and co-eternal. They've all, all three have always existed, all three are fully powerful, all three share the same glory, there's no hierarchy or subordination, all three share the same essence as God, eternally, fully, but yet are three distinct persons. So what Paul's saying here is that Jesus has always fully, totally existed as God, fully divine, the eternal Son of God in heaven with all of the glory of deity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Hebrews 1.3, He, as Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay. So what does Jesus do as fully God? Although he has always truly existed in full deity as God, Distinct from the Father, different person, but shares the same godhood. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Christ did not greedily seek his own advantage. Did Jesus have every right and privilege as the eternal Son of God to everything in heaven? Does he have all the authority, all the power? Does he share equality with God? Yes. But what did Jesus voluntarily choose to do? Go to be born of a virgin and come to earth and die. Now, this is not in your notes. And maybe I should have put it in there. So if you have a pen, write this down. There is what we call the eternal covenant of redemption. The eternal covenant of redemption. what the eternal covenant of redemption is. And the Bible teaches this in various places. We don't have time to go to that tonight, so just trust me on this. The Bible teaches that in eternity past, the Father and the Son made a covenant, made an agreement. The Father would send Jesus to earth, and Jesus would voluntarily do that. And so it wasn't like the Father sent Jesus against his will. Like, God, the Father came to Jesus and says, I want you to go to earth. And Jesus says, I don't really want to go. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like the Father had to arm twist Jesus. It was, it was the Father said, I love my people so much and their sin is so great. I'm sending you, Jesus, to go die for them. And Jesus says, yes, Father, I will willingly leave all the glories here and I will go die on the cross for." my people. And so Jesus had every right in heaven to protest and say God I don't want to go. Now obviously Jesus wouldn't do that. But what does Jesus do? He says I'm going to voluntarily leave my position of glory in heaven to come to earth to be born of a virgin to take on human form. And eventually to die. I'm not going to seek to please myself. Romans 15.3 For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself. His ultimate goal was to please the Father. But his ultimate goal also was to come into, to to, to voluntarily come to earth. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, So that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had all the glory in heaven, but he chose to come and die. So he voluntarily submitted himself to the eternal plan of God, the eternal covenant of redemption, and came to submit himself to the will of the Father. Now, what was the will of the Father? What was this eternal covenant of redemption? What would it involve? What pleased the Father? Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put into grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. It was God's will for Jesus to die in our place on the cross. So you can say it this way. What pleased the Father? To send Jesus to die. What pleased the Son? for Jesus to leave heaven to come and die. Did Jesus have to do it? No. Did he voluntarily choose to do it? Yes. Okay. Second thing that Jesus does here, and we have to be very careful because this has been misinterpreted. This has been uh, ripped out of context and and caused really bad theology. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He made himself nothing, he, I don't necessarily like the translation, he emptied himself, because let's talk about that. How, how do some people, how, how do you think that could be misinterpreted? He emptied himself. Many liberal theologians have abused this term to say that Jesus gave up his divinity while on earth. So what, did Jesus, what Jesus emptied himself of was his divinity. So when he came to earth, he was only more like an exalted man, or he was just merely a man, and he, didn't, he wasn't fully God and fully man. He emptied himself of all divinity when he came. Um, that's pretty much heretical and finds no support in Scripture. Okay. Jesus never emptied himself of any type of divinity or any of his godhood. I think the King James Version actually probably has the best translation of this. Basically, the way it it really should be translated is that he made himself of no reputation. It wasn't though Jesus emptied himself of being God or ceased being God or ceased to be equal with the Father and said, basically you could take it this way, Jesus voluntarily laid aside the privileges that were his. Jesus says, I don't care about my reputation and what I all the things I have in heaven. I'm voluntarily laying that aside that's rightfully mine, and I'm going to come and and serve. It's not like Jesus stopped being God. Think about it this way Jesus has always been God. He just added humanity to his divinity. There was nothing subtracted from Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus stopped being God when he came to earth. He's always fully God when he came to earth. He just added humanity, so he's fully God, fully man at the same time. Now, that's called the hypostatic union. We don't have time to talk. We may get get into that, but Jesus is, is ultimately fully God and fully man. So how did he empty himself, if you like that term? Or how did he make himself of no repute? Or how did he lay aside his privileges? Well, the text here tells us that Jesus did that in two specific ways. First of all, he took upon himself the form of a slave or a servant. Verse 7 He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A servant. Do you guys remember the most poignant example of when Jesus was a servant in John chapter 13? What did Jesus do with his disciples? He bent down and he washed his disciples' feet. He was a servant. He fulfilled all of those Old Testament prophe- prophecies of being the suffering servant. A servant. Isaiah has those servant songs, the suffering servant, and you see the prophecy that came true about Jesus being the ultimate servant in Isaiah 53, 3-5. through He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. Let's talk about slavery for a moment. Not... United States civil war, chattel slavery that we're familiar with in the in the dark days of of our country. But back then the Philippians would have understood what it meant to be a slave. Because when you became a slave, you gave up all rights. You didn't have any rights. And so for, for Paul to say that Jesus became a slave, a servant, what basically Paul's saying is that Jesus gave up all the rights he had in heaven that were rightfully his. Voluntarily gave those up. God didn't make him do it. Jesus voluntarily did it. And he came to earth, born of a virgin, to serve. Think of how Jesus could have come. He could have left the glories of heaven, came down, and been a king with all the wealth and all the pomp and all the circumstance and been born in a palace and said, everybody's going to come serve me because, after all, I'm God in the flesh. Did Jesus do that? No. He could have, but he didn't. He was born in a stable, born in Bethlehem, served. Matthew 20, 26-28. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom of many. Why did Jesus come? To be served? No, but to serve and to give his life. So, so think about the progression here. We're talking about this, this lowering, this progression. Jesus starts out in heaven. He gives up all those rights. He comes down to earth. He comes as a servant. And then the second thing here, Paul says, is he comes as a man. Okay? He doesn't come as like this exalted angel or something. He comes as a man. And, and ultimately, this is called the incarnation. At a point in time, Jesus was born of a virgin. He was a real man. Okay. Did Jesus cry? I'm sure he cried when Mary rocked him. Was Jesus ever hungry? Did Jesus ever get tired? Did Jesus physically suffer? Jesus experienced everything we as humans experience except for one significant difference. What's the one thing Jesus never experienced? He never once sinned. Okay. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we get to the third point of humiliation, okay? So the first point is Jesus left the glories of heaven. Second, he, became, he came as a man to serve. And then thirdly, the ultimate. He identified with us as humans in the sense that he went through all the ridicule, the struggles, the, the heat, the sweat, the work, the suffering, even though he didn't sin. But look at verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul basically says, here's the lowest point of humiliation. Jesus has gone from being glorious in heaven to choosing voluntarily to come to earth as a man, Fully God, fully man, but not just any man, but a man to come to suffer all the things that we've suffered and then ultimately to die. And it wasn't just Jesus was going to die of old age. Paul's like, he's going to be obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Oh yeah, death on a cross. The worst kind of death. Do you know that in ancient Israel during that time, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It was a cuss word. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even mention the word cross because it was reserved for criminals and for vile rebels. It was a scorn for both Jews and Gentiles. So what did Jesus experience when he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? What is encompassed in the cross. Is it just the fact that Jesus was crucified? Let me remind you of something. Thousands of people were crucified during the time of Jesus. Remember, there were two criminals on each side of him. So crucifixion was the, the main way that they executed criminals and, and, and slaves and people that were insurrectionists back during that time. So it wasn't just the physical torture of Jesus dying on the cross, as, as hideous as that was, there was something even deeper. So what did Jesus experience there on the cross? Well, he experienced the cup of God's wrath or God's justice. The cup. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on Matthew, in Matthew 26, 39? Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Have you ever thought about the cup? Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. What's Jesus talking about? The cup. What cup is Jesus talking about? What was the cup? If you go back to your Old Testament, the cup that he would have to drink until it was empty was God's wrath or God's justice poured out against sinners. The cup. Jeremiah 25, 15 Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Drink the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. Jesus says, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. What Jesus is praying is... And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Jesus knows that when he goes to the cross, when he becomes obedient to the point of death, he knows that he's going to experience the full cup of God's wrath against our sin in our place, and he's going to experience that. If you go and look at Revelation 14, 9 9 and 10, we're not going to look at that, but you find out at the very end of the age, God pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world, and it's called the cup of his wrath. So Jesus is going to become obedient to death on a cross. He's going to experience the justice that we deserve. He's going to experience the pain, the suffering, the anguish, the punishment that we deserve. And so remember, this is a hymn that they were singing. And the hymn has reached its lowest point. Where did it start? Jesus is equal with God. So the full glory of God. Jesus is in heaven. He has every right to everything in heaven, but he voluntarily chooses to leave all of that, to humble himself, to come to earth, to be born as a man, fully God, fully man, not just any man, not a king like the normal king that would want people to serve him, but a servant. And then ultimately, the lowest point is to go to death, death on a cross to bear our sins. So we've seen the progression go from heaven to earth to the cross, the lowest point of humiliation. Okay, I wanted you to see what verse 9 starts with. What does verse 9 start with? Therefore, boom! Okay, God does it, there's a shift in the hymn. Okay, so we've gone to the lowest point, and now the hymn's gonna shift, and we're gonna, there's gonna be a, an upward trajectory. Because Jesus voluntarily did this, left heaven, came to earth, became a servant. Identified with us as a man. Died on the cross, obedient to death. The hymn flips. And God does wonderful things for Jesus. So let's read verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord The glory of God the Father. God has a decisive action towards his Son. God's going to exalt and lift up Jesus as a result of Jesus' obedience to the cross. So, first of all, God highly exalted Jesus. Notice the progression. Where did Jesus start? In heaven? Came to earth, servant. Died on the cross, therefore, God highly exalted him, gave Jesus the highest position. Notice there's no progression, okay? It's automatically just the highest position. Jesus is is sovereign over all things. Colossians 1 16 through 19. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is highly exalted, he's preeminent, he's sovereign, he's at the right hand of the Father, he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He had to go through the progression of lowering himself and then he was highly exalted. And secondly, what has God given him? God has given him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue on earth should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name Jesus Lord it's very important. Lord. In the Old Testament, God was called Yahweh or Lord, all caps. And this word could not be pronounced, it was only reserved for God, the Father. And so, God here is basically sharing his name with Jesus, which basically means that this was unheard of for anybody to share the name Lord. But Jesus is Lord in the sense that he shares the full glory of God as Lord. He is the triumphant Savior. Have you noticed that when you talk about God in the generic sense, people aren't that uncomfortable. But when you begin to talk about Jesus, people start to squirm and get a little uncomfortable. Um. I was at a training today in Fort Morgan for, for for Zachary, my son. Sometimes because we're family caregivers, we have to go um, and, and learn some stuff. And so I was sitting next to a guy, and he was telling me about how his son was in a car wreck. He had another special needs son. And um, I didn't know, didn't know anything about this guy, but he was basically talking about how the doctors, he, like his son flatlined when the ambulance showed up and then flatlined again in the flight for life on the way to Children's Hospital, but then ultimately lived and the doctors were saying he's not going to live and so this guy said well you don't know the god i serve don't tell me my son can't live. i i I believe in a sovereign god so this guy's sharing this with me and i'm thinking wow um, this is pretty awesome and so we began started talking about the lord and then i just kind of slipped in there and said you know, um you know, praise the Lord, Jesus is awesome and he he didn 't flinch one bit, and so he kept talking and found out I'm a pastor, and for the rest of the time, we started talking about the things the things of the Lord, um, but you could have started that conversation, kind of had some generic God talk, you know, you know so a lot of people believe in miracles, but then when you say, well, Jesus, it's like, well, wait a minute, you know I don't want to go that 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 far, but it was a neat time to talk to this guy um, about about his son, and our sons are close to the same age and things like that so Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. The point is, Jesus is the only name, the name above all names. And so he's the only name by which we're saved. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus that we are saved. The name Jesus. And this is really a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy here. This comes from Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now, let's just talk about this. When it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, here, here's, here's, what, here's the point here. Does that mean that every single person becomes a Christian and confesses Jesus as their Savior and Lord? No, there would be no such thing as hell. Okay? The, Bi- the Bible definitely teaches that there are people that don't believe in Jesus. What this does mean is that <coughs> even those in hell suffering there for their sin, whether they like it or not, whether they have hatred in their heart or not, <coughs> they will one day confess Jesus as Lord. It doesn't mean they're saved. It just means that they will acknowledge that he alone is the true king. Every knee will bow, whether they want to or not. Now, the thing about it is, is we get to joyfully bow because we're his children. We're the children of the king. Um, Revelation 5.13, we see this. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So we gladly bow the knee to King Jesus. We joyously confess him as Lord. And when we confess him as Lord, it really means that we openly declare that we agree with God that Jesus is king. The word to confess means to agree with God. Basically what we're saying is, yes God, we agree with you that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign. We gladly confess this. We gladly bow our knees. we get the privilege of bowing the knee and confessing Jesus as Lord as the only the only way of salvation. Now, what's the purpose of all of this? What's the whole reason for all of this? For what purpose? To the glory of God, the Father. This is all about God's glory. Now, we went through that hymn <clears throat> and we went through it pretty extensively. So let's ask the question, why was this entire hymn, verses 6-11, given in the first place? It was an example that Paul gives. It's like a sermon illustration Paul gives of Christ's humility as a way for us to emulate. What does he say back up in verse 5? Have the same attitude that Jesus had. Well, Paul, what attitude did Jesus have? Well, let me tell you. He voluntarily left all of his rights and privileges. He came to serve, and he became obedient to death on a cross. That's the attitude Jesus has, and I want you to have that same attitude. So it was to instruct us in some deep theology about who Jesus is, but it was also to inspire us to be like Jesus. So let's ask the question. When we think about the entire progression of this passage of Scripture, Paul has started by saying, You are loved by Jesus. You are protected by Jesus. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm your pastor. I want to be joyful. Here's how you can make me be joyful. Be humble. Get along. Have the same attitude. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Be humble. Have the same attitude as Jesus. Okay, how do I have the same attitude as Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul's going to tell you. Paul says, listen, here's the attitude Jesus has. He voluntarily left the glories of heaven. He did not cling on to what was rightfully his. He voluntarily humbled himself. He became a servant, ultimately to the point of death. And so that's how I want you, Paul says, to emulate or have the same attitude as Jesus. So let's ask the question. How can we? We can't repeat the cross, obviously. We're not supposed to die for our own sins. Or there's some things that are unrepeatable, obviously, because Jesus died once and for all. But if we are to have the same attitude as Jesus in what he did... Let me just give you some ideas here, some thoughts. We are to voluntarily submit to the will of the Father and not seek to be the Lord of our own life. What did Jesus do? He obeyed the will of the Father. He did not cling to his own rights. He did not seek his own advantage. We should voluntarily submit ourselves to God's will, not our own. We have plans for our lives. We have things we want to do. We have our agendas. And those things may come in great conflict with what God has for us. And at the end of the day, we should submit ourselves to God's will and what God wants us to do. Okay? We are to empty ourselves, we are to die to ourselves every day. We are to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. We're to give up our rights and privileges to serve others. And ultimately, we are to be humbly obedient to whatever God calls us to do. Whatever God calls us to do. So Paul says, listen, the way that you can be humble, the way that you can have a Christ-like humility is to look at what Jesus did. He voluntarily left the glories of heaven, he became a servant, he became obedient to death. You do the same thing. Not in the same way, but the same attitude. Voluntarily give up rights. Don't seek our own privilege. Don't be selfish or self-seeking. Look to 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 the needs of others. Serve others, be humble, be willing to be a servant. Be willing to have an attitude of love and compassion and unity and be willing to submit yourself to the will of the Father because it's not all about you. It's about God and his agenda and his glory and his will, not ours. So that's the hymn and that's where we're going to stop tonight unless you all have questions or comments. I'm not taking any snide remarks tonight. Yes, Yes, Brent. That mm-hmm. <laughs> I said in my notes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I don't know what page six is, but I can look back here and see. Okay, okay. Let me read. Let me. Do you want me to read what I wrote in my notes? Okay. Okay, I'll read this. Okay. If we take all these verses together, the sovereign spirit of God is doing an internal work in us to transform us and conform us to becoming more and more like Jesus. That is the ultimate test of discipleship. Here's what I said. Am I acting, thinking, speaking, relating, and responding like Jesus? Am I walking in a manner worthy of my calling? When people look at me, do they see glimpses of Jesus? Each day we should be maturing and transforming more and more into the image of Christ. Did you get all that? Acting, thinking, speaking, relating, and responding. I couldn't think of any other. Like Jesus. Did you have a question, Jerry? Redemption. Yeah, the eternal covenant. Yeah, it's, the covenant of redemption is basically in eternity past, God the Father and Jesus the Son entered into a covenant of salvation or redemption. God would send Jesus to die for us. Jesus would voluntarily agree to do that. And it was a covenant that they made with each other to accomplish. It wasn't like God made Jesus do it and Jesus came unwillingly. Jesus voluntarily said, I'm going to do it. The Father sent him because he loved us. Yeah, it's just called the the covenant of redemption. Was there any time in the Bible where God said, or God wanted you to do something? And Jesus said no? no. There's no time. The question is, was there ever a time when God asked Jesus to do something and Jesus said no? As a matter of fact, in the book of John, I think it's around John chapter 5, I'd have to go back and look. Jesus says, I always do the will of my Father. I always do the will of my Father. And if Jesus ever said no to his Father, then he would have sinned. And that would disqualify him from going to the cross. So Jesus never disobeyed the Father in thought, word, or deed. He always did the will of the Father. And the ultimate will of the Father was to leave the glories of heaven and come to serve us and to die on the cross. Yeah, but even then he said, not not my will, but your will be done. Yeah. Any other questions? I've been getting you guys out 10 minutes early, which is it's good. All right, we'll keep trekking through Philippians. Um, I guess the main thing is, do we have a Christ-like humility? And do we look to Jesus as our example of what he did? So... Let's pray, and then um, we'll be done. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. and It does blow our minds, Lord Jesus, to think about that you you voluntarily left the glories of heaven to come serve us. We did not deserve to be served. We should have been serving you. You did not deserve to die. We were the ones that should have deserved to die, but you went there willingly. You were obedient to, to death. But then, Jesus, you're highly exalted. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You have the name above all names. We want to gladly bow to you. And so, Lord Jesus, as we look at your example, help us to be humble, help us not to be selfish, help us not to be glory seekers, help us to have the same attitude and to be unified, to be striving side by side for the gospel, help us to love one another. Uh, Lord, help us just to serve one another. It's very difficult to put others before ourselves. But Lord, help us to have that Christ-like humility. And it only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, thank you that we have fellowship with you, as as, as verse one says. The only way we can do this is through your power in us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.